Her name was Hannah Spaulding, and she was a nobody that anyone ever heard of. She was born in 1802, a resident of a little village called Outwell in Norfolk, a little farming village in the far east of England. She was a commoner, living a common life as the wife of a hired farmhand. Her family was poor. Life was hard. But for Hannah, there was an added component to the difficulty of life. She had a spiritually broken heart because for the 49 years of her life, she had been seeking to find spiritual answers and had none. She didn't know how to find God, and so her heart was was shattered and hopeless. We'll leave Hannah for now and visit with her again a little later. There is expressed in the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, a truth, a doctrine. It's one of paramount importance, and yet it's consistently one of the most neglected truths in the church of Jesus Christ. It's, it's passed over as if it just belongs on the dusty shelves of ancient libraries, never to be read again. The great 18th century evangelist George Whitfield preached this doctrine incessantly, however, He did so partly because of his concern for how little it was preached. And in fact, in his introduction to one message, Whitfield said, This doctrine, though one of the most fundamental doctrines of our holy religion, though so often and plainly pressed on us in sacred writ, that is the Bible, nay, though this is the very hinge on which the salvation of each of us turns, yet it is so seldom considered that were we to judge the truth of it by the experience of most who call themselves Christians, we would be apt to imagine they had not so much as heard whether this doctrine even exists or not. In fact, George Whitfield's preaching on this doctrine was so powerful and effective in the 18th century that in the 19th century, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, essentially modeled his entire ministry focus on George Whitfield and George Whitfield alone. In fact, historians have said, if you're going to understand Charles Spurgeon, you must understand Whitfield. His entire preaching focus concerned how George Whitfield exposited this particular doctrine. And it was Whitfield's treatment of this doctrine which led Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century to be boldly evangelistic and to never apologize for pleading and imploring the lost to come to faith, even commanding them to come to faith. It was this doctrine which had Spurgeon not only cast the net of the truth of the gospel, but draw the net in to the best of his ability to catch new converts, as it were. It was this doctrine that led him to believe with all of his heart that gospel preaching would, in fact, most definitely 100% of the time, bear the fruit of new converts, as over 11,000 converts just in his own church could testify. In fact, Charles Spurgeon was so convinced of the truth of this doctrine that it led him to give some of the greatest calls, some of the greatest urges to salvation that have ever been heard in a Christian pulpit. He said, I exhort you then to look to Jesus Christ and be lightened. Sinner, you will never regret this. He said, deathbeds are stony things without the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, come then, let my threatening have power with you. I do not threaten because I would alarm without cause, but in hopes that a brother's threatening may drive you to the place where God hath prepared the feast of the gospel. He said, I have no authority to ask you to come to Christ tomorrow. The master has given you no invitation to come to him next Tuesday Sinner, in God's name, I command you to repent and believe. 
That was all from one message on December 5th, 1858. And that was normal. There was an urgency. There was a pleading to Spurgeon's preaching because of his confidence in the gospel of Christ and his right understanding of this one particular doctrine. This is the doctrine which is the pinnacle idea of the grace of God. It's the height of the heights. It's something utterly undeserved, unmerited, unasked for. It's the doctrine that sets biblical Christianity apart from the Roman Catholic religion, apart from American cultural Christianity, apart from charismatic theology, from all forms of Christian faith which rely on human effort for salvation or downplay the true nature of salvation. It was of this doctrine that J.C. Ryle wrote, It is a complete transforming and altering of all the inner man in which he enters into a new existence, a new mind and a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings, new dislikings, new fears, new sorrows, new love for things once hated, new hatred for things once loved, new thoughts of God and ourselves and the world and the life to come. It was of this same doctrine that J.I. Packer wrote, changes the disposition from lawless, godless, self-seeking, which dominates man in Adam, into one of trust and love, of repentance, from past rebelliousness and unbelief and loving compliance with God's law. It was of this doctrine that the eminent R.C. Sproul wrote, it changes the disposition of our souls, inclining our hearts to God, and is that which precedes faith. It was of this doctrine that Benjamin Warfield wrote, It is the radical and complete transformation wrought in the soul by virtue of which we have become new men, no longer conformed to the world by the knowledge and holiness of the truth created after the image of God. It was of this doctrine that Robert Raymond wrote, enables the elect sinner to respond in repentance and faith to the outward and public gospel proclamation directed to his conscious understanding and will. And it was of this doctrine that Charles Wesley wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This doctrine has taken its name from several New Testament references, most often called the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of the new birth but most famously explained by the Lord Jesus himself in John 3, that you must be born again. It is the doctrine of the new birth, of regeneration, of being born again, which gives you tremendous, tremendous assurance of salvation because regeneration is permanent, it's enduring, it's everlasting, it's eternal, it's unending, whatever other words you want to say that means won't ever go away. It's irreversible. And so this new birth, the saints' rebirth, This is our latest piece of evidence here from John 17 that you can, in fact, have blessed assurance that if you've received Christ as your Savior for forgiveness of your sin, you can never, ever, ever be reclaimed by the kingdom of darkness again. Can't happen. Now, here in John 17, we've been considering it topically over the past weeks, and and whether you've been keeping track or not, uh, we are considering every word in this text just in different orders. And we've been looking to find direct evidence of our assurance of salvation, evidence outside of our temporal experience, outside of our emotion, outside of our spiritual history. 
Now, in this text, we don't see a direct reference to the doctrine of regeneration, to the new birth, but we see some statements that Jesus makes that can only be true in light of the doctrine of regeneration. They can only be true because of the new birth. Now, remembering that Jesus uses in this prayer the term cosmos, world, in numerous different ways, several times he refers to the world as that system of unbelief and darkness of which we are no longer a part, and that's what we'll consider today. Verse 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They're out of the world. You are out of the world, not just in the sense that Christians are taken from people who are in the world. That's where all the people are, so it can't be that but in the sense that the Christian has been separated from, called out from the world. In fact, the true Christian begins to understand his faith more and more fully because that they're not part of the world. How do they understand this? Because the the way the world treats you and the way the world treats me. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Notice, you are not of the world, and Jesus compares himself to you and you to him, just as I am not of the world. There's a similarity between us. What is he talking about? He's talking about where people come from. Jesus came from heaven. And in the same way, your new status as having been born again came from heaven. You you are not born spiritually in this world, so to speak. Your new birth originated in the heavenlies. Jesus said in John 3 that you were born of the Spirit. You're given spiritual rebirth by the Spirit of God. Regeneration is spiritual resurrection on a dead person who cannot and will not seek God. In fact, in verse 16, Jesus reiterates it again. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And now the spiritual reality is that you have, a, you have a different origin. You have a different awareness. You're living in a world which doesn't have this origin, doesn't have this awareness at all. In verse 25, Jesus prays near the end of his prayer, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Do you understand that you are in the circle of those who understand the person of Jesus Christ? And yet there were countless thousands who were literally face-to-face with Christ and never got it, never figured out who he was. You're able to see that you do not belong to this world, that the true kingdom is yet to come. You see eternal truths which the world can't even fathom or even care about. And none of this is possible without the new birth. Listen, the Christian is not merely somebody with a new ethic. The Christian is not merely someone who tries to live a more moral life. The Christian is not even someone who tries to please God now. And certainly is not someone who simply has a vague concern about sin and a vague concern about forgiveness. A Christian is one who has received the new birth, period. But not only do I want you to be fully convinced of this doctrine, but hopefully I'd like you to be encouraged and edified that the new birth, the doctrine of regeneration, 
impacts your assurance of salvation in, in really some, some very significant ways. And, and it is, of course, our assurance of salvation that gives us great joy. It gives us great peace. It gives us great confidence. It, it makes us able to agree with the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 15 that where, O death, is your sting? And we have that confidence because of assurance. And so I want to ask two basic questions. First of all, what are the basics of regeneration? I want you to understand the basics. What are the basics? And why does regeneration give you assurance? Why does regeneration give you assurance? Now, we're going to go to a lot of different scripture passages, probably more helpful for you to note the references. It might be easier for you. So first, we'll look at the basics of regeneration. Now, as you might expect, the fundamentals, the the basics for this doctrine would be found where? In the Old Testament. Regeneration is certainly promised as part of the coming new covenant, and yet the Old Testament saint experienced an internal heart change component to their faith. It is absolutely inaccurate to say that the Old Testament believer's faith was purely external, while the New Testament believer's faith is internal. There is clearly a change of heart which was wrought by God. For example... David wrote in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. In other words, only one with what? A pure heart may worship God. And since we're sinners by nature and by action, a pure heart is in and of itself impossible for us. We can't do it. So there must be a heart change component to genuine faith. So with that little introduction, very briefly, the basics of of regeneration. I'm just going to give you five of them because I want to get to the more important part of this morning. But the basics of regeneration. First of all, regeneration defines the people of God. Regeneration is that which defines the people of God. In Moses' final sermon to Israel, recorded in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, He makes a promise to them directly by God that after a prediction that they'll be scattered because of sin, but the promise is that they'll be regathered someday, but this time they'll be different. Moses uses the outward sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision, as an illustration. And now God says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And of course, we uh, as New Testament Gentile believers in Christ, the spiritual offspring of Abraham, so to speak, we've been given the privilege of getting in on this promise that God made to Israel of what? Of regeneration. Now, this fact is, it's a fundamental, it is a basic tenet of our faith, and that is that a Christian is someone who has been regenerated. There is no other definition. A Christian is not someone who says, what would Jesus do? A Christian is not someone who prayed, Jesus, take the wheel. And the Christian is certainly not someone who asked God to work out your wonderful plan for my life. A Christian is one thing only, and that is a regenerated human being. There's a second basic of regeneration. Regeneration eclipses outward religion. Regeneration eclipses outward religion. It it overwhelms it. Jeremiah chapter 9 records God's exasperation with his people and 
One of his primary accusations is that many in Israel are religious outwardly, but they don't have a true, repentant, humble, saving faith in God. And so God goes on in Jeremiah 9 to describe all the horrific punishments that he's going to bring on Jerusalem and on Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, very shortly. But in the midst of this punishment, God makes a distinction. He makes a difference. He creates two groups. Jeremiah 9.25, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. What did God mean by this? Well, it seems that God is taking specific aim at pouring his wrath out on outwardly religious Jews, but not on those who have genuine saving faith, some form of regeneration, a pre-New Covenant change of heart. And if we had time, I could make the case from Habakkuk 2 and 3 that at the time of the exile, the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, those who were truly saved were spared. They were not killed. And it was only those that were circumcised merely in the flesh, outwardly religious. Regeneration eclipses outward religion. It's the third basic of regeneration. Regeneration is superior in the new covenant. Regeneration is superior in the new covenant. God did, in fact, command Old Testament Israel to have an internal reality to their faith. He commanded them in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, circumcise therefore your heart and no longer be stubborn. So there was a command toward an internal reality of faith. But regeneration as we know it in the New Testament terms is clearly a new covenant promise, a a great and vast improvement. This is most classically promised in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, when God promises a, quote, new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. God gave the same promise through Ezekiel. Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. Now, this was a promise given specifically to Israel, and yet the Gentile church today, we have received some of the benefits of the new covenant in advance of the coming restoration of Israel, not the least of which is regeneration. Let me give you a fourth basic of regeneration just to kind of lay the groundwork here for you. Regeneration cleanses from sin and changes the heart. It is regeneration that cleanses from sin and changes the heart. In many places in Scripture, there's a close connection made between cleansing from unrighteousness and the total change of heart. In another promise of the coming new covenant, God speaks through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. And he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's cleansing. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you still don't understand this? Jesus said in John 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What was Jesus doing? All he was doing was paraphrasing Ezekiel 36. This is what Paul was talking about when he wrote in Titus 3, when he says that we're not saved by good deeds, but, quote, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. One more basic, and this is an important one. If you remember nothing else, remember this one. 
Regeneration causes repentance. Regeneration causes repentance. The work of God in regeneration is what caused you to recognize your depravity, your rebellion, and to humbly ask God for mercy in forgiveness. The prophet Zechariah records God's future mercy on Israel and the result of his grace that they will repent of having rejected Christ. Zechariah 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, that's regeneration, and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they, have, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. That's repentance. Regeneration, spirit of grace, repentance. And by the way, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ five centuries before his birth. Paul says in Romans 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Not that repentance brings about God's kindness. God was kind first and then you repented because you were enabled to do so. So those are the basics about repentance. Let's kind of lay our groundwork there. But more to our point today and to this whole series, what, or why, does regeneration, why does regeneration give you assurance? What we'd like to do is kind of climb in our airplane here for a little bit, and we're just going to touch down on a bunch of mountain peaks all over the New Testament, just kind of maybe touch our toes on these mountaintops here. Rather than going deep, I want to go wide, and I want to absolutely engender confidence and joy in you because that's what accompanies the absolute, total, unquestionable assurance of salvation. So why does regeneration give you repentance or give you assurance rather? We're going to just touch some mountaintops here. Regeneration gives you assurance because it was the only way to God. It was the only way to God. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you catch that language? Unless he's born again, he cannot, will not, will ever see the kingdom of God. There is precisely one way to God, a way that Jesus called in Matthew seven thirteen, the narrow gate that you must be born again, and you, by God's grace, have taken this one way to be made right with God. You didn't find this road. You didn't discover this road. You were placed on this road. It is the sole pathway to heaven. Regeneration is the only way to God, and that's why it gives you assurance. I'll give you another reason. Regeneration gives you assurance because it was the miraculous will of God. It was the miraculous will of God. John 1, verse 13 says that you, quote, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And John goes through some interesting parallels here. He says, you were not born of, you were born not of blood. This is a, a plural in Greek, meaning not of bloods. What is that? Well, this is an ancient description of what we call, might call DNA. Parents intermingling their bloods, as it were, creating a child. You are born not of the will of the flesh. Literally in Greek, the desire of the flesh, meaning human desire, that which is natural versus that which is supernatural. And you are born not of the will of man. Uh, this is not speaking of mankind. This is a specific word for male or for husband. It's speaking of a husband's initiative with his wife to bear a child. Now, what does this mean in the context of John being written originally to Jews? 
Now, if you're a Jew, how did you make a saved person in your mind? The way you made a saved person was to have a baby. And they were automatically saved because they were Jewish. But John's point is the opposite. No human act of the will can create salvation. Doesn't matter who your parents are. A parent can't decide that his child will be a believer. And a person certainly can't will themselves to believe. So where does the new birth come from? It was the miraculous will of God alone. The miraculous will of God alone, which is one of the reasons, by the way, we do not subscribe to infant baptism. Infant baptism assumes that a baby is going to come to faith in Christ because he has Christian parents. This text says otherwise. We baptize believers who have been brought to faith by the grace of God alone. There's another reason for your assurance. Regeneration gives you assurance because it was produced by the Spirit. It was produced by the Spirit. John 3, verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Grammatically in Greek, this says that the Spirit causes the new birth. Not just that the Spirit happened to be in the general vicinity or that some Christians are born of the Spirit and others are born of their own will. The Spirit causes the new birth. In fact, earlier in the same speech to Nicodemus, Jesus says five times that you must be born again, born again, born again, born again, born again. And all five times the verb forms are passive. What does that mean? It means that being born again is something that happened to you by an outside force or agent. And that is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it directly in John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. And he adds, just to make sure we understand, the flesh is no help at all. Now, some of you here, and I've talked to some of you, you might be sitting here with a, a little bit of a sense of disappointment. Because you can recall a day where you heard a sermon where the pastor pleaded with you, you must be born again and come to the front and, or sign the card and you should be born again. And, and, and you remember a day where you even prayed, dear Jesus, I want to be born again. But can I tell you this? By the time you prayed, dear Jesus, I want to be born again, you already were. That's why you made that prayer in the first place. It was the work of the Spirit that brought you to that point. So another reason regeneration gives you assurance, a precious reason, it introduced you to Christ. It introduced you to Christ. Do you realize there was a point in your life that from one moment to the next, you went from not knowing the Lord to knowing all about him? John 5, 25, Jesus says, very precious to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Probably the biggest outpouring of this prediction is easily the day of Pentecost when for the first time in history God filled his people with the Holy Spirit. They heard the gospel, they heard the word of Christ and responded by the thousands as the Holy Spirit sent by Christ rushed into the world to create a new people known as the church. And he says that time is now here. Jesus continues to make himself known through regeneration. We read this earlier this morning, but Paul says so eloquently in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and I can't help but imagine that he thought of his own salvation experience when he said, 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That in the face of Jesus Christ, you see the light of the glory of, the, of God. Let me ask you this. In Genesis 1, did the light say, I want to be created? Did Adam call from the particles of the dust, Oh God, please create me? No. And neither did you say, Oh God, please regenerate me. He simply did. Your spiritual eyes were opened, your ears were unstopped, and the first thing you saw, the first thing you heard, was the love and the beauty and the kindness and the reality and the majesty and the power and the worth of Jesus Christ. And it all came flooding in at once. And you have never taken your eyes off him since. And you never will. So another reason regeneration gives assurance. Regeneration gives assurance because it was directed by the Father. It was directed by the Father. John 6, 45, Jesus said, It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Let me repeat that. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Did you notice the order? First, the lost person hears from and learns from the Father and then comes to Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3 that God the Father, quote, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Caused us to be born again. Those are a lot of English words to explain one word in Greek. And it's a word that means to be born anew. One eminent language expert explains it is, quote, a radical change in personality with the attendant change in state. And this change of state was directed by the Father. Now, speaking of change of state... Regeneration also gives you assurance because it made you a new creation. This is another reason for assurance. It made you a new creation. Very first verse I ever memorized in my whole life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But verse 18 says, all this is from God. How much did you have to do with your regeneration, with your salvation? Nothing. As a Christian, you didn't just alter your morals. You didn't change your priorities. You didn't try to get your life together. You were recreated into a new person. The old person has has passed away. It's, It's a verb which means to go away. We use it as a euphemism for what? For death. That it's dead. The old man has died and been replaced by the new life of Christ. In fact, the problem with the old man was that you were already dead. Thus, another reason, regeneration gives you assurance because it raised you from spiritual death. It raised you from spiritual death. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Colossians 2.13, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. John 11 records the famous instance of Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus said to the gathered crowd, 
hang on a minute. I'm listening to see if Lazarus prays for me to raise him from the dead or not. Can you be quiet so I can hear through the, through the rock there? No, he didn't say that. Without help from, without desire from, without a yearning from Lazarus, Jesus of his own volition with a loud voice said, Lazarus, come out. And just like we've been unbound from our sin, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And by the way, I'd be willing to bet that Lazarus never said to Jesus after this over a cup of tea or over a meal, I'll bet Lazarus never said, you know, Jesus, I'm not sure. I think I still might be dead. He never said that. He was fully certain that he was alive because of the one who had called him. Another reason regeneration gives you assurance. You have assurance because it came through the scriptures. It came through the scriptures. Regeneration was not the idea of a theologian in the 16th century. Regeneration was not the idea of Augustine. It was not the idea of John Calvin. It was not the idea of any human being. John 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth, literally gave birth to us by the word of truth. John 6.63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And the clincher, 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as presented in the Holy Scriptures, was the truth that the Holy Spirit used to regenerate you, to open your eyes, to unstop your ears. And since the Scripture is eternal and imperishable, then the act of the Scripture to save you is eternal and imperishable. And therefore, you have great confidence. If the greatest confidence you have in your salvation is that some guy standing behind a wooden box said you're saved, that's no confidence at all. But it is the gospel presented in the very eternal and imperishable word of God that gives you confidence. Now, right about now, someone might be saying, but salvation is by faith. I had to have faith to be regenerated. You're close, but no cigar. It's the other way around. You had to be regenerated to have faith. And that's another assurance. Regeneration gives you assurance because it caused your faith. It caused your faith. This is a very important point. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter says we have obtained, literally received, our faith. John said in 1 John 5 verse 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What's the logical order? You've been born of God, therefore you believe. And most famously, Paul said in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The Apostle Paul arrived in Philippi. He began proclaiming the gospel to women gathered at the river, and one of them, Lydia of Thyatira, was listening. And Acts 16.14 records, quote, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was saved, she was baptized, immediately began serving the Lord. She came to faith. Why? Because the Lord opened her heart first. Now, if you've ever asked yourself the question, did I have enough faith to be saved? 
really that's an irrelevant question because God is the one who gave you faith in the first place and you may be certain and you may have great encouragement that he always gives in full measure and in full abundance. You will not stand before God and God shake his head and say, if only you had had more faith, you would be saved. It is not a question of quantity. It is a question of do you have faith or not. You did because God gave it to you. It's another assurance. Regeneration gives you assurance because it caused your obedient desires. It caused your obedient desires so many times in 1 John. John speaks in very black and white terms about sin and righteousness. 1 John 2.29, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, speaking of the new birth. 1 John 3, 9 and 10, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Why is it you loathe your own sin? Why is it you desire to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Why do you love the preached word even as it humbles you and sharpens you and shapes you and teaches you and even at times humiliates you? In your own sinfulness, why do you love this? Because at the core of your being, you yearn to be like your Savior. And that's because of regeneration. That's the result of being a new creation in Christ. Regeneration gives you assurance for another reason. It caused your genuine love. It caused your genuine love. Again, back in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God, regeneration, and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, we spent a significant time on this just last week, but I just want to point out that John's point here is that being born of God, being regenerated, is what causes you to love the people of God. And I even kind of quipped last week, look around, if you don't like anybody here, you're not saved. We love one another. We cherish each other. We adore the people of God. I'll give you another reason regeneration gives you assurance. It guaranteed your spiritual victory. It guaranteed your spiritual victory. 1 John 5, 4 and 5, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Can I put it this way? You're not racing toward the victory you've already won. You just haven't reached the finish line yet. You are, by definition, victorious already. Your spirit is completely totally ready to enter heaven right now at this very moment. You are a new creation in Christ. Now there is simply the little detail of leaving behind the sinful flesh that you currently inhabit. But your victory over sin, over darkness, over Satan is complete. If I had time, I would have given you a longer list. But regeneration gives you assurance because it was the only way to God. It was the miraculous will of God. It was produced by the Spirit. It was introduced, it introduced you to Christ. It was directed by the Father. Regeneration made you a new creation. It raised you from spiritual death. It came through the Scriptures. It caused your faith, caused your obedient desires, caused your genuine love, and guaranteed your spiritual victory. I, I don't know about you, but I can preach the doctrine of assurance of salvation from regeneration alone, case closed. 
never mind the other 12 reasons we've been doing over the past weeks. Can I put it this way? The moment you were regenerated, there was no going back and there never will be. Never, ever will be. And so rest easy. Rest easy. Just a few months after coming to faith in Christ himself, Charles Spurgeon began preaching in 1851. He was 17 years old. We don't even let 17-year-olds bring water to us in the church. Things have changed a little, but he was uniquely gifted, powerful in the pulpit. His father had grand hopes for him that he would go to London and attend theological school and, and attain all these degrees, and he had every intention of doing so, but didn't work out. When he was 17, he joined a group of young men who traveled through the countryside preaching in homes, in tiny cottages, in small chapels. And one little church, Water Beach Chapel, invited young Spurgeon to be their pastor. Can you imagine having a pastor who hasn't even shaved yet? That's amazing to me. And so every Sunday, Spurgeon would walk six miles to Water Beach to preach. He called it a full and true six miles. He also preached several times during the week. Almost a year into his ministry, Spurgeon preached his 100th sermon at Water Beach Chapel entitled, Sinners Must Be Punished. He preached on Psalm 917, The wicked shall return to the grave, all the nations that forget God. And he closed his message with an appeal, The sinner can bring no excuse, not ignorance, not forgetfulness, not want of heart, nor want of time, no nor part obedience, nor the hardness of the law. Enter Hannah Spaulding, age 49, poor farm laborer's wife in search of spiritual answers, deeply spiritually depressed because she had no hope. She couldn't find God. She was unable to grasp God or the truths about God. And it was during that sermon that the Holy Spirit opened her heart and regenerated her and gave her the gift of faith. Spurgeon didn't even know about it. It was three weeks later, one of his deacons told him that Mrs. Spalding had surrendered her life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went and he visited her, and he heard the story. She said that after hearing that sermon, she went home with her heart shattered, that she had nothing to offer God, she had no good works, that all of her pre-misconceptions about God were untrue that she had tried everything to be right with God except to give up her excuses and repent. But her shattered heart gave way to joy and peace because on that day she received the new birth. Now, why was Mrs. Spalding special? Spurgeon tells us why. He said, quote, She was the first to seal my ministry and a very precious one. I prize each one whom God has given me, but I prize that woman most because she would be the first of 11,000 known converts under Spurgeon's preaching, and he never forgot her. Hannah Spaulding, after a lifetime of searching in vain for God, received the gift of faith through the new birth. She immediately began to be a faithful witness in her family and in her village, and she died 18 months after coming to faith in Christ. But Spurgeon said... She went home to lead the way for a goodly number who have followed her. All because of the new birth. And as a believer in Christ, we rejoice in the new birth and we take great confidence and great, great assurance from the new birth. But can I ask you this? 
What if you're fearing that you are not regenerate, that you have not been born again, and you hear me saying there's nothing you can do about that, that you've not come to saving faith? Yes, it is solely God's work, but could I commend to you the desperate man of Mark chapter 9 who cried out to Jesus, Help my unbelief! And he cried out to God, asking him for help. If you're fearing that perhaps you are not regenerate, if that fear is there, can I tell you this? That is the Lord stirring in your heart right now, and it may be that he is regenerating you even at this moment. And you need to respond to that. You respond in faith. You believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And you ask him for mercy. You ask him for mercy on your sin, on your rebellion against him. And then let it be said of you, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in my heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I hope this will be the day for you by the power and the grace of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you and thank you for your grace, for your kindness. I doubt any of us could really pinpoint the exact moment when you, by the direction of the Father and the will of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, I doubt we could pinpoint the exact moment that you regenerated us. Maybe we could come close. But Lord, we know that moment exists. We know that there was a A time when we were in the kingdom of darkness, when we loved our father, the devil, when we loved our sin, we loved our rebellion. We did not seek after God because there is no one who does good. No, not one. We would not listen. We were blind. We were deaf. We were mute. We would not look to you. We were drowning in our own sin and we liked it. But at a moment in time, your gracious arm reached down into the darkness of our sin and depravity and plucked us from the fire And opened our eyes and unstopped our ears. And when our eyes were opened, we beheld the face of Christ. We give you praise and honor and thanks because our eyes have never been taken off of him since and never will be. And we gladly receive the promise of 1 Thessalonians 4 that we will always be with the Lord. I pray for a believer or two here who may be struggling with assurance. I pray that they would first examine their own lives and see what sin may be existing that makes them question their salvation. But I pray that the doctrine of regeneration would give them great hope and great confidence and we would pray for a man or a woman here or listening to this message in whom even now the Spirit of God is stirring. Might they respond in faith and come to the cross where salvation is given so richly and so freely, for it is to the glory of Christ and for his name we pray.